0: If you've got um, a Bible in front of you, and we have some new church Bibles, by the way. They are over in the the corner, underneath the PA desk, um, if you want to to follow. We've got two readings this morning. One is a reading we read right at the start of the service, um, and that's from Isaiah, and then we're going into the book of 1 Corinthians. So this is from Isaiah chapter 2, the mountain of the Lord. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us come to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then we're turning to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. And I'm going to read from verse 20 down to 28. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything is being put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this day of remembering, we pray that as we gather around your word for a few moments, that these passages will speak your life, your hope, your certain future into our very beings today. We ask that our remembering of the past may challenge and change our, our today and speak into our future. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been thinking a lot about memories, remembering this morning. And I think when we think about life, life, um, our present, we have to interpret through the past. We have no choice. When we think about the future we project what we have experienced in the past onto the future, because it's all we've ever known. Now, I wonder what your earliest memories are in life. Apparently, our first memories are formed somewhere between the ages of two to three, but then actually, up until about the age of seven, we only remember memories. We don't remember the events themselves. Just think, what's your earliest memory? Mine, rather ironically, is of being sat in a hairdresser's with my mum. I don't know why that sticks with me. But then they come flooding in quite quickly after that. So I can remember walking down the front at Ilfracombe at 9 o'clock at night watching the lights. I can remember being sat in reception class at school with a picture that said house on it, with a picture of a house being taught how to read. And then they start gathering, and they get gathering pace and pace and pace. But memories can be good, can't they? They can be positive things. We can look back fondly and think about times that we've experienced. We recently, over half-term, had a few days away, and it was actually a really good time. Um, We stayed in a nice place, we had nice weather, and the memories of those three days, I remember saying to Claire, it's like a nice memory bank to keep us going through the drizzle, well, it's not drizzly today, but the nasty weather of November. But memories can also be the complete opposite, can't they? They can be deeply painful, deeply hurtful. We can sometimes lock them away in compartments in our mind and say, do not visit on them. A couple of years ago on Remembrance Day, if you've been part of the church for a while, you might remember that I was sharing about my own granddad. Now, my granddad was in the First World War, and he had a leg shot off in the trenches. And his leg was shot off when he went over the top to try and rescue a friend. And I never knew him. He died a couple of years before I was born. But those memories were so painful, so horrific, he could never talk about them. He just kept them away. He could never bring himself to open up about what had happened. The memories that we hold, they can be painful and they can be good. But we have to live with them. And we have to work out what to do with them. Chris has already mentioned this morning that our, our Christian life, our Christian discipleship is full of memory. The Bible, you know, the word of God, it is the record of memory. It's what God has done through the lives of people over millennia. The communion meal that we share, we're told to remember, bring to remembrance, reenact what Jesus did at that Last Supper. And so today on Remembrance Sunday, we have remembered, we've not glorified, but we have remembered the terror of war, of conflict. Now, I always think when we remember, it poses a question what does that mean going forward? What does it mean to remember conflict? How can my remembering change my today? Well, the first part of um, of the, the reading that we read, the first reading that we read from Isaiah looks forward. Isaiah is the most amazing prophet. And if you came to um, our service last Sunday night, we were also in Isaiah, and I was mentioning this then, that it's this glorious book. It's, It's quite long, it's lengthy, it goes into significant detail. The first 39 chapters, Isaiah is largely writing into the situation of the day, and he's talking about how God's judgment is going to come on the nations. But more than that, we start to get these chinks of light that come in there, because Isaiah was a prophet who'd been given a message by God to share about the coming glory of God. To share that one day, one day, everything will be different. One day, the glory of God will cover the whole earth. Look at this verse from a bit later on in Isaiah. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And the New Testament sort of puts, puts more flesh onto that whole idea. And we get the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation and the time when God will come and he will wipe the tears away. There'll be no need for war. There'll be no need for conflict. Pain will have gone. But to understand Isaiah 2, we sort of just for a moment have to get our mindset into an ancient mindset to try and work out what this is about to do with mountains. You know, mountains are great things. Well, I, I like mountains. I like climbing them. I like looking at them. But in the ancient world, people thought that if you climbed up a mountain, this was particularly in the pagan religions, you got very close to God, or the gods, as it would have been. Because the gods lived just up above the blue bit of the sky. So the higher up you got, the closer to the gods you got. So you find, like in Israel's history, you hear about the high places, and it often says the high places were not torn down, as they should have been. The high places of pagan worship, people would go there thinking they were physically getting closer to God. So when Isaiah talks about the mountain of the Lord dwarfing everything else, God's mountain, the mountain of the temple, God's rule and reign, makes everything else look absolutely irrelevant. Irrelevant. Not worth even looking at. And so we get this beautiful imagery of the nations of the earth streaming to God's rule and reign. Coming to see what the Lord will do as he settles disputes. And that incredible image of swords being turned to plowshares. I love that image. You know, the things that people meant for violence and meant for human destruction are turned into the very things that create our food and feed us and create nourishment. And that's what God is all about. Verse five, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. I'm just wondering today, as we have remembered, do you have, just as Eric was saying, do you have that vision of what God is going to do? Does our remembering push us forward to think about, this is God's future. This is what God has on his heart for us. The good news is that this has already broken out. The good news is that God's future is not some dim and distant hope that we just have to cling to. But in Christ, the new creation is here. But sadly, in our world, we do live with the reality of Conflict, this seems to have got stuck. Can you just forward me on, John? Big conflicts normally start out as small ones. I don't know if you've noticed that in your own experience, but um, I remember studying for A-level history, and we did the build-up to the First World War. I don't know if anyone studied that period of history. And it was really fascinating to hear what happened, is that you've got all these nations around Europe, and they started to vie with one another for superiority. And each one thought they were better than the others. And so the militaries of each nation grew, and the economies grew, and people were trying to say, we are the best nation. And then alliances formed, and there were these opposing alliances and what happened an archduke of the austrian hungarian empire got shot in serbia and it lit the torch paper and the war started and within four years millions of people lay dead because of human conflict because every conflict that happens has deep roots but conflict isn't just about war and violence is it although that is the worst outcome of conflict conflict happens with our words with our actions And conflict happens, actually, when we think we're right, and somebody else thinks they're right, and we start doing this with one another. And if we're not careful, that becomes the breeding ground for conflict. And that's where the problems can start. Conflict happens when there are deep roots of something that has gone wrong. Now, we can try and avoid conflict, and sometimes we can do this in life. We can think, well, I'm just not going to go there. I don't do conflict. You may be sat here today and thinking, I never do conflict. And actually, what we can do is we can think, oh, there's a nice rug. Let's just lift it up and brush everything under the carpet, leave it there, and hope for the best. But if you do that, the rug has a nasty habit of getting rather full underneath. And eventually, the conflict starts to spill out at the sides, and you find you've not dealt with it. You've just tried to brush it, as it were, under the carpet. Or we can do what so many people do. We can shout louder and we can try and make our point ever clearer. And we can say, no, I'm right. I'm not going to go with the way of peace. I'm just going to keep battling forward. Or actually, we can look to Jesus. We can turn our eyes upon Jesus and we can see what he has to say. Someone once said this, and it's an anonymous quote, though I think I'd want to be credited with that if that was mine. 10% of conflict is about differences of opinion. 90% is about tone of voice. The content is only the small amount, isn't it? And quite often, if we think we're in conflict with somebody about something, if we deal with it well, we can move on. But a lot of the time, unfortunately, as human beings, we get into the wrong voice tone, the wrong mannerisms, and things start to escalate and things start to blow up. Someone once gave me some very, very wise advice, and I know it's something me and Claire will talk about with couples before um, they get married. We'll do it on the marriage course. Is when there's an issue that you're in conflict with anybody about, the danger is is that we sit there and we start to fire things at one another, not literally, but you know, words or whatever. And then actually, what happens is it just escalates. It starts to keep going and going and going. And this person said to me, actually, here's the conflict. This is what the conflict is. Put it on the table in front of you and talk to it as an issue. Resolve that issue. Don't go into conflict with one another. Be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Three and a half years ago, we bought our main car. And it's been a really good car. If you've been here a while, you may remember me talk about our last car that was anything but a good car. So it's actually been a real blessing to us to have a car that doesn't break down every five minutes. And um, I remember driving the car back from the garage when we first bought it. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself doing that. You talk about things when you've just bought them as this car. Not my car, not our car, but this car. And I started to find myself saying to Claire, this car, oh, wow, look what happens when you press this button. Look what happens when you do this. Oh, wow, I pressed a button and I found this car has a CD player. Now, that is not because it's futuristic. It's because I'm very backward-looking and still like to play CDs in the car sometimes. And I pressed this button, and the whole thing lifted up, and I could put a CD into the dashboard. Amazing. But it was this car. Three and a half years later, it's now our car. Because it's full of memory. It's full of dog hairs as well, but that's another point. (laughs) But things over time, they start to grow. They start to have meaning. And it's interesting how many things grow in our lives, isn't it? You may have moved home or changed jobs recently. And you can find yourself saying, this job, this house. And then it becomes my job, my house. Today, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've made that commitment to follow him in your life, the further on we go in that journey of discipleship, We go from Jesus' teachings, what Jesus says, possibly feeling like, well, that's his teaching, that's Jesus' way. Hopefully, we move to a point where we then say, actually, I want Jesus' way to be my way. But if we let the Spirit transform us, if we keep delving into the Word of God, if we allow ourselves to be shaped and molded by the Gospel, then hopefully, little by little, Jesus' ways become our ways, and we start to take ownership of what Jesus did. Now, Jesus never shied away from conflict. He certainly didn't brush things under the carpet. Think about him in the temple with the money changes. But Jesus had a different aim. His aim was the reconciliation of all things. He came to bring peace between God and human beings, and then between human beings and human beings. He would say, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who work for human flourishing, who work for reconciliation. Now, peace is not just an absence of war, an absence of noise, but peace is moving forwards when conflict is addressed well into God's future for us. Our car, there will come a day when it starts to go wrong, when it becomes uneconomical to repair, and it will go from being our car to this car. (laughs) Why is this car breaking down again? Why has this car gone wrong? And we will have to sell it and we will have to buy something else. You see, there is a danger for us as Christians that sometimes we can try following God's ways. We can listen to the message to be a peacemaker. We can do it and then suddenly we find we're in conflict with somebody and actually it just gets too hard. And we start to think, well, these are Jesus's ways. I can't do that any longer. he kind of encourage us, as Eric said, to turn our eyes to Jesus. Keep fixed on him. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he talks about two ways of being. One way is to be in Adam. Now, Adam is, is sort of the, the accumulation here of all humanity's failings. It's to be in the fallen way or to be in Christ. Christ, who is God's savior, who is the redemptive process that God has, has set for us. Christ, who brings about the new creation. So there is a choice today, sorry, do you want to be in Adam or in Christ? Do you want to be somebody who is creating conflict, who is in conflict, who doesn't seek to resolve conflict, or do you want to be part of God's solution? Do we want to be part of what Jesus calls us to be? It's all too easy to step back into being in Adam rather than in Christ. You see, for Paul, Adam is stuck, can't save himself, can't move forward, can't do anything. He needs a savior. Being in Christ, it's all done at the cross. The violence, the conflict is all taken. The sin is defeated. The powers are defeated. And we can move forward into God's future. Look at these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled To God. We're called today, Paul says, to be the ambassadors of Christ. Christ's hands and feet in this world. In a world of conflict, in a world that there are so many problems, we are called to be those who are ministers of reconciliation. We are called to be those armed with a a vision from Isaiah 2 that Christ will become all in all and moving forward to God's future. And we see evidence You look at church history, it is littered with people who've taken that message seriously. People like Corrie ten Boone, people like Martin Luther King. The list will go on and on and on. People who've said, actually, we take God at his word and we become part of the solution. You see, when Jesus returns in glory, we will be able to look back and say, these were the people who took this seriously. These were the ones who became the peacemakers. These were the ones who were committed to becoming part of God's solution. Now, on Remembrance Day, it's very easy, I think, sometimes to keep everything on a very big scale and say, well, you know, I'm not in armed conflict with anybody. I'm not involved with war. I, I don't sit at the table at the UN. I don't have any great deal of influence. But actually just think about your own life for the moment. Let's make this very personal. I imagine all of us in some way are probably in conflict with somebody else. We may even be in conflict with ourselves. That happens too. How can we move those situations forward? As much as it depends on us, how can we move those situations forward to God's ways of peace? Do we choose to be God's instruments of reconciliation? Do we choose to be those who move forward and hoping to see those swords turned into plowshares? Or do we plow on in our rightness, unwilling to walk in Jesus' way? Jesus would say very simply, blessed are the peacemakers, but they will be called children of God. The Beatitudes are not an aspiration of things that we, we have a, a tick list of things to do, but they are the characteristics of those who are following Jesus. Is your life, is my life today, characterized by being a peacemaker? Is that who we are? Are we those who follow the way of Christ? just three very brief reflections if the, the music group could come up they'll be leading us in a moment but just think for a moment where is there conflict in your life today where is there conflict what does it mean to be a peacemaker in that situation what does it mean be different things in different situations i'm not going to suggest what that means for you What would it look like to align yourself to God's purposes in your life, to be part of God's solution, to be pointing people to Jesus and to being a peacemaker as he calls us to be?